This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. Each episode, I talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join us. Today, my guest is Amy Solomon, editor of the new book, Notes from the Bathroom Line, humor, art, and low-grade panic from 150 of the funniest women in comedy, just out from HarperCollins. She's a producer on HBO Silicon Valley and Barry. She currently runs Alec Berg's production company, where she develops content for film and television, and she lives in Los Angeles. Hi, Amy. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to have you. Uh, Why do I feel like I've waited forever for this book? Like, what I mean is a collection of funny women, specifically the top 150 funniest of women. Nothing else comes to mind like this. So congratulations. But why does it seem like we have so few collections of funny women? Yeah. So that's basically why I did it. So there's a book from 1976 that I fell in love with growing up because I was obsessed. I mean, still am obsessed with Gilda Radner. And so I bought basically Mm -hmm. anything she had ever been a part of. And it's this big book called Titters. And it claims to be the first collection of humor by women, which I think it probably is. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, Gilda Radner, Lorraine Newman, Candace Bergen, Phyllis Diller, like some of the funniest women of all time. And then There was never anything like it again, which was so bizarre to me. So mostly selfishly, I wanted another collection of humor by women um, because funny women are my favorite thing in the world. So, yeah, I set out to do it. And I think... (laughs) I think the reason it probably doesn't exist is because it was very, very hard (laughs) just um, Mm -hmm. wrangling that many gals. I mean, it was also like just the loveliest experience because I got to connect with all of these people that I'm truly a fan of and collaborate with them and to receive their writing and to give tiny little notes, but very like edited as a light term. These women are brilliant. But yeah, so it was just like my lifelong dream and sort of driven by like, why doesn't this exist? That's wonderful. So 150 women, give us some names and give us some sense of how you chose who to include in such a humor collection. Yeah. So, I mean, whenever people are like, who's in it? Uh, My brain just absolutely freezes because there's so many gals Mm -hmm. that I don't know in what order to say them. (laughs) But okay, let's see if I can do it. Lake Bell, Lennon Parham, Sunita Mani, Margaret Cho, Maria Bamford, Kristen Schaal, Rachel Bloom. I mean, it just goes on and on. If you go to notesfromthebathroomline.com, there's a very I often go back to look at the contributor page to, like, get my brain right. But so I had people I was fans of. I had friends whose voices I think are amazing that aren't as well known. So I basically just sort of started casting this net. And I would ask a gal, and then I would be like, and who are your favorite people? And they would tell me. um, And if they were, they would often connect me to those people, which was so kind. Um, And so, yeah, I just sort of started um, creeping around New York, L.A., Chicago, and making all these women um, be my pals. 
So that was you creeping around New York, L.A., and Chicago that we kept hearing about. I see. Okay, good. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. I mean, I keep reading in places like the New York Times has these pieces that use phrases like push the envelope and new territory when they're referring to where humor and women are going together. And I, I don't know, but this seems like code for treading into places that have long been reserved for men. Is it? Yeah. I mean, I talk about this in the introduction, but it was just like everywhere I went, I just felt like the world was exploding with funny women. College and then coming out. <laughs> I love out that to idea. I hope it's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. But I also think, I totally agree. I mean, like, I think it's gotten, oh my God, so much better since Titters originally in 1976. But if you look at a lot of your favorite shows, those writers' rooms are like, often like one woman, you know, out of 10 mm. or 15. And it's just insane. And so mm-hmm. I just think the voices are there and like these truly brilliant gals and we just have to like make the space and like force the boys out. <laughs> and so, <laughs> yeah, so it's just like there's no lack of talent by any means. They're all ready. And also it's about, you know, having women in charge. Like when you look at a show and it's like, oh, it has a female creator and a female showrunner and a female star, those rooms are so diverse Mm -hmm. and amazing. And when you look at shows Mm -hmm. that are like, you know, male creator, male showrunner, male star, I mean, there's extreme exceptions, but Mm -hmm. most of the time they're not uh, not as good about it. Yeah, and you would know. You're a producer, as I said, for Silicon Valley and Barry, and you run a production company. So as for a living, you develop content for film and television. So what of those talents come over to help you curate and edit a collection like this? And then and then we'll get into how you actually do it. But what do you think is in, you have in common between those two worlds? Yeah, I mean, it actually was enormous overlap. So it's basically in my day job. I mean, there's the times when we're on set and I'm producing on the shows, but like in a larger sense, my job is to really just like meet talent, identify talent, think of them, you know, like, oh, we have this idea, who might be good to write that? And there are a lot of spreadsheets and that's the same thing about the book. So, and so many women that I've met through my job, I then got to work on the book with. So it was a lot of overlap and that was awesome. So it was like, oh, I actually have skills I could put to use. That's great. So spreadsheets, it's just such a funny concept. You know, I, I live in the world of writing and I do have clients that I work with who spreadsheet out their entire books. They know absolutely everything about their characters before they set a word onto the computer. But mm-hmm. where are the spreadsheets here? I mean, you had 150 women. Are you talking about your spreadsheeting, spreadsheeting cartoonists, writers, stand-up performers? You've got all of those in here. Is that what you mm-hmm. mean? Or are you also spreadsheeting like how to put chapter, which chapter goes where? What does it look like? Yes, literally all of the above. So it was like, at first it was, (laughs) let's make a list of the women that I would love to get. And it's like, okay, here's how I might get to them. Did I email them? What date did I email them? What date should I follow up if I haven't heard from them? Then it transitioned (laughs) into like, who has said yes? What stage are they at? And I basically wanted to give women the opportunity to sort of set their own deadlines. Like there was, you know, an ultimate deadline we had to, but I often find that if they're involved in the process of like, oh, here's one I think might be good for me, 
they're kind of more likely to do it. And it was always weeks before we actually needed it to be done so that we could be like, if it doesn't happen, it's okay. Because I never wanted Mm -hmm. this to feel stressful to people. Like this was supposed to be like a big fun thing. So I didn't want to be this like (laughs) warlord ruling all these gals. And so, yeah, so then it would turn into, okay, have they turned in a draft? What stage are they at with the draft? Have I given them notes? Am I waiting to hear back? So I wanted to do themed chapters. So now there's it's like family, entertainment, the world we live in, socializing. Those are some of them. I wanted the pieces to sort of speak to what those chapters should be. So I waited until mm-hmm. most of the pieces were in. And then my friend Julia and I, who I owe the world, put the pieces on a million note cards in this insane color-coded scheme. And we put them out on the floor and we like basically sorted them into columns. And so that all went into a gorgeous spreadsheet. And so, yeah, it was just like every step of the way there was a new organizational spreadsheet tool. But yeah, I'm a big, I'm a big dork, you can tell. I, I just love it. And I think people forget that there's this practical aspect to writing in every stage. I have graphs. I have directed people to look at the the drawings that some writers, people like John McPhee and, and Gay Talese, uh, all map out their pieces of work before yeah. they do them. Gay Talese does them on his shirt cardboards. You know, talk about an antiquated thing, but it works for him. John McPhee does these incredible drawings. Yeah. John McPhee was my college professor. <gasps> See, you know. Yeah, you know. I know all I mean, about those those, those graphs that he does for the Paris Review on book structure and for the New Yorker on book structure. What a yeah. lucky writer you are to have had him. He's he's a genius, and I love him like mad. Yeah, right. May he just teach forever. He's unbelievable. I've never been more <laughs> starstruck in my life than that class. It was incredible. Yeah. He's the loveliest man alive. It's also true in my day job of we are extremely mm-hmm. outline oriented. Mm-hmm. I, like, I think so much of when you're growing up and you're like, oh, a writer is such a, like, I don't know, ethereal vocation. And you sort of, like, sit at a cafe in Paris and you sort of jot down what you're feeling and blah, 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 blah. And in reality, I think for a lot of great writers, I agree, it's, like, pretty methodical. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, in my case, spreadsheets. In John McPhee's case, those graphs, which are incredible. I'm sure you've recommended this before, but his his book about writing. What's it called again? Draft number five? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's genius. Genius. I love the reminder always to people about the practical aspects of writing. It's not something that drops into your head from some muse that can totally. be seduced through your bedroom window. It is a hard chair, an awful lot of caffeine. You know, Thomas Hardy used to tie himself into the chair. I totally get that. And, you know, these assignments take on whatever they need. And so if it's spreadsheets and color-coded note cards and a friend who helps, there you go. Totally. When you did this, I have to say this this assignment just sort of terrifies me. And as much as like walking into the first floor of Saks Fifth Avenue, you know, with all those perfume <laughs> samples. Totally. I mean, after a few hits, man, you cannot discern floral from green. So how do you curate and edit and decide what's funny after a couple of pieces? Is it because they're so different or do you take a break? I mean, working with a humor collection, I would think you might lose your sense of smell, but no, yeah. yes. That's such an interesting question. Yeah, I think it definitely helped by how different the pieces were. So I encouraged people. I didn't Mm -hmm. want it to just be 
personal essays. So I encouraged people to think outside the box of like, is this a sort of collage? Is this poetry? Is the, you know, so I wanted it to all feel really different. So luckily when things were coming in, it would be like, oh, here's an essay, but here's fiction and here's a cartoon. So at least they would be pretty different. But yeah, I think you just have to trust your gut. And then also my boyfriend was honestly really helpful. I let him read a lot of stuff and he has, mm-hmm. he's not in the business, which is really helpful. Just getting like a sort of second gut check. But yeah, I, I try not to like overthink, you know, like, did that just make me laugh? Okay, great. Then that made me laugh. Mm-hmm. Like not, don't think through it too hard, you know? <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. And I think that's it. I think it's not gripping the handlebars too hard, you know, mm-hmm. it's, um, yeah. It's a hard one. Humor is such a difficult thing. I mean, I think it's the hardest thing to write. Also, when I'm working and I've published a bunch of books, but in the times when I've been writing and it has to be funny, I will literally write into the text, Marion, be funny here in the first draft (laughs) because there's just no way, right? Like You just know it's time. You know that it has to be funny, but sometimes there's just nothing there. So you say, okay, I'll come back and be funny here when I can be funny. It's way easier to be funny when you don't feel like you have to, when you feel like you have to, you're like, okay, maybe I've never been funny in my whole life. Not once. That's it. That's exactly it. On demand. I don't know how people do it. I just don't know how they do it. So let's dissect um, one of the pieces. Uh, Saturday Night Live's Cecily Strong has the perfect piece that made me squirm, laugh right out loud, gasp, put my head down on the desk and moan, and then like laugh out (laughs) loud again when she tells us about a funeral preference she has. So like, do you want to take it from there and explain what she does? Yeah. So... Oh, she's amazing. Well, first off, it has an unbelievable illustration that this amazing artist Carly Jean Andrews did. That's a representation of what Cecily's asking for in the piece. So basically, mm-hmm. I didn't know this about Cecily, but she's incredibly morbid and thinks about death a fair amount, it seems. <laughs> Apparently. Yes. She had heard about these funerals in Puerto Rico where they like stuff and pose your body for a public viewing. And she basically became obsessed with that. And so she was talking about what she might want, and she has decided she wants to be on a jet ski with her dog. <laughs> and she's not into jet skiing. She's she's never jet skied, but she feels it would be really cool. Yeah, I'm glad you picked this one because a lot of the pieces have this. It's so funny and insane, but also there are really, like, touching moments. She writes a really—I might just read it for a second, but there's this really mm-hmm. beautiful little— sentiment that says that's talking about you know what she wants out of her funeral and like she wants people to laugh and clearly they she wants them to miss her but like ultimately Mm -hmm. like the fact that she could make them laugh after she's passed would be like a great gift so she goes so in my thinking people would initially walk in and be shocked then maybe repulsed then hopefully they'd (laughs) laugh then they'd probably cry because i managed to make them laugh at my funeral and i assume that would probably make them remember how much they miss me and how much they might continue to miss me but then they'll look up at me doing my stunt and laugh again or shake their head and say god you fucking weirdo as long as they don't start crying because I really love them a lot too and I don't want them only feeling sad and I hope it's a little reminder that it meant a lot to me to be their fucking weirdo that my life was made fullest by shocking and sometimes repulsing but hopefully most often laughing with these amazing people my adventures were the time I spent with them and they made me yelp with delight so it's like Ugh. so funny and goofy, but beautiful. And I love 
that sentiment. She goes on to talk about how much her friends mean to her, too. Also, for the record, yeah. there's an audiobook of the book, and Cecily reads that piece herself, and it's so much better. So listen to that. Don't listen to my terrible, terrible iteration. Yeah, it's a beautiful piece. She, yeah. she, she says something like, if you can't... But if you can't be adventurous in life, why not fake it afterward? Because she talks about mm-hmm. how she doesn't jet ski and how, yeah. I mean, there's this really strong sense of regret and also holding close the people you love. And then mm-hmm. at the end, she gets this whole thing where she kicks it right upstairs to the answer to what do you want on your tombstone? She says, cheese and extra garlic. And it's like, no, <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> That's your it's pizza so order. <laughs> It's so good. Yeah. I love it. And she sent this to me. So good. Just like, I maybe made like little nips and tucks, but like that was what she sent. It was unbelievable to just get these emails in and be like, hey, here's a first draft. Let me know what you think. Um, And it was just, I mean, also Cecily's an absolute queen and has her own book coming out in August, by the way. She wrote a memoir that I'm so excited about. I'm so excited. That's great. So for writers who are thinking about answering a call for submissions, I know this was a something that you devised from scratch. You wanted this book to happen because it didn't exist. The writers that are listening now are, are searching poets and writers' calls for submissions and a whole lot of other places for their dog essays or their childcare essays or whatever. But what's mm-hmm. the thing that you would tell people to do in the piece? They're answering a very general call, you know, call for stories on dogs or call for a story on something with humor. How do you distinguish yourself when you know that 300 people are sending their pieces to a place? What would your advice be to writers? Yeah, part of what I did when I started this, I sent another document of prompts of just like, here are sort of themes and questions that I think might be interesting because some gals were so paralyzed by kind of, you can write whatever you want. Some gals were like, oh my Mm -hmm. God, freedom, amazing. But some were like, that's absolute paralysis for me. Um, And so for a lot of them, I was just like, what's a thing you just like really think about a lot? Like, I think in life, there are so many things like that really occupy our brains, but we never like put pen to paper about. Um, Like Mm -hmm. what, like clearly Cecily thinks about how she wants to be on a jet ski at her funeral, (laughs) you know, but like she's never really had the chance to write this thing. So I think when you're writing about something that ultimately is really deeply resonant inside of you, like that comes out in the piece. So rather than taking prompts that like you're like reaching for, like if you can wait for the one where you're like, oh, you know what, this actually like really matters to me. I think that will always come through. Yeah, you hit on a couple of things that I really think are true there. One of them is writing from counterphobia. You know, the idea that you think about you are morbid and that you think about these kinds of, well, uh, realities, but they are fantasies to many of us, the idea of being stuffed and put on a jet ski. And Mm -hmm. that's not something that you might necessarily bring up over dinner to a friend. Maybe she would. But to go to that place that you think, what have I never told anybody? What What am I afraid to say? What am I afraid to throw out there? What am I afraid to just ask myself? Well, like, what do you mean by that is a great place to write from. And it particularly engenders humor when you go to the fearful thing. And Mm -hmm. you can find that in your dogs and your spouses and your boyfriend and your lover, whatever. It's all over the place from fear. 
year. So I think that's a that's a great place. Go where you would not necessarily go. And don't just give us that sort of, you know, ham and cheese sandwich version of, of a humor piece, but give us something that has a stu- your stuffed body on a jet ski. <laughs> yeah, totally. I totally agree. If you're a little bit nervous for the thing to get published, I think that's such a good thing. If you feel like so like, oh, I don't mind this being out in the world at all, like, I don't know that that's as revealing and as deeply felt as something that you're like, oh, here it goes. You know, one of the gals, this amazing gal, Angela Beavers, did this piece that's a Venn diagram of her dad's two girlfriends. And (laughs) the other circle is her ideal girlfriend for her dad. And so it's, yeah, his two girlfriends that he's sort of like, you know playing off each other and then her ideal one and she was a little bit nervous about it because she was like you know my dad will see this you know we eliminated a couple of the little jokes in it that made her feel like a little bit too weird but it's so good and you can tell it's like you know she really this is on her mind um and she's a little bit nervous for to go out in the world and I think that that's that's kind of where the best stuff comes from that's such great advice. So you've got Venn diagrams, you've got essays. What else have you got? To give us a sense of the range of what we're going to find when we pick up this book. Yeah. So that was a big thing that Titters inspired me to do, too, was Titters has, like, everything. It has recipes. It has a dirty Eloise comic that's amazing. And so Notes from the Bathroom Line has, yes, a Venn diagram, cartoons, sort of like longer comic pieces. There's sheet music. There's a gal, Anna Greenfield, who took her diary entries from when she was 11 years old and annotated them and wrote back to her 11-year-old self, too, which is amazing. And it's called Bangs Plus Breasts Equals Fast, which was something she wrote in in her 11-year-old diary entry. So I don't know. There's just, like, anything and everything and, like, gorgeous illustrations. I got to ask all my favorite illustrators to do. I would just send them the piece and be like, do what this makes you feel. And they always came back unbelievable. So it's big and it's colorful and it's, uh, it's so cool. It's such a joy. I, I think it's going to be like Titters. I think it's going to be one of those milestones in humor. I still don't understand why with women we have these sort of long desert stretches um, between these sort of bursts of famous humor pieces. I grew up in the 1970s raiding my friends' parents' record collections. And they always mm-hmm. had jazz and they had Frank Sinatra, but they always had a dirty record section, a dirty comic record section. And they always had women. Like, I remember this woman named Belle Barth, who she sold over a million copies of her album. If I embarrass you, tell your friends. This was a, like, such a a fabulously body irreverent, wildly dirty record. And we just loved it. And then Mm -hmm. I feel like we kind of go into these troughs of nothing. So my great hope is this book is one of those great milestones that people refer to. They say titters, and then this one, and it allows us to keep women a forefront in our minds when we think about humor. Do you think that we are here to stay now as funny people? I mean, the, the movies that we're seeing, we can all name the movies that, you know, Bridesmaids and et cetera, et cetera, that, that got that kind of coverage. Have we gotten up on the cork board where we're going to stay or... Are we going to slide back, do you think? What, what, do, you, what oh, do you think? I sure hope so. I sure hope so. I mean, I think when you look at, like, recent casts of SNL and stuff, like, all of the standouts are Kate McKinnon and Cecily. And, I mean, it's just, like, I think the funniest people in the world are women, and I hope everybody 
agrees. I know they don't, but we'll we'll bring them over. But yeah, I don't know. I just think I'm trying to, you know, that new movie that Kristen Wiig and um, Annie Momolo just wrote came mm-hmm. out, Barb and Star, that's sort of their follow-up to Bridesmaids yep. that everybody's been loving. The Australian Open is on right now, so I've been watching seven hours of tennis every night, so I can only think about tennis right now. So I'm like, Serena Williams is hilarious. Um, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I sure hope so. A black... I, I also, I yeah, that's so. what my dream for this book of Titters was sort of this time capsule to me. And all of these were young women at the time. You know, Candace Bergen is still like an absolute icon, like still, they did a reboot of her show, right? I don't know, whatever. Yep. I mean, some of these women in this book are already solidified as icons. I mean, Margaret Cho, Maria Bamford, blah, blah, blah. But I tried to pick also in a little bit of a younger generation, too, of people that are just like, I know their stars are going to rise like crazy. So I hope people discover people in this book that they like, and then they see them like absolutely ascend. So yeah, hopefully it's sort of a time capsule in that way, too. I hope so. Well, thank you. I I just wish you all the very best with the book. It's a joy to read. It's a joy to behold. And it was a brave and wonderful thing to do just to take on the spreadsheet aspect of it, let alone the editing and curating (laughs) aspect of it. But we're in your debt. So thank you, Amy. I really appreciate you coming on and and advise everybody to go get many copies and give them to all their friends so that the women in these books can remain in the spotlight. Good luck with the project. Thank you. This was so lovely, truly. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Amy. Notes from the bathroom line, humor, art, and low-grade panic from the 150 funniest women in comedy is just out. The editor is Amy Solomon. See the book everywhere books are sold. I'm Marion Roach-Smith, and you've been listening to Cordy. Subscribe wherever podcasts are available. Cordy is produced by Overit Studios in Albany, New York. Reach them at overitstudios.com. Our producer is Adam Claremont. Our assistant is Lorna Bailey. Want more on the art and work of writing? Visit marionroach.com and take a class with me. And thanks for listening. 